2: Hello and welcome to the Oshaginsberg Podcast. I'm Oshaginsburg. Thank you so much for being here with Wempi Dioctacodo. You can find him on Twitter at Wempi Dioctacodo W E M P Y D Y O C T A K O T O. He's from Indonesia. He's amazing. More about him in a moment. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. If you like this show, please subscribe. There's a lot of new people here. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. There's a lot more episodes to check out than this one. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Periscope, Meerkat, Snapchat, blah, 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 blah. I'm easy to find. You can email me if you like. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Yeah, you can also go to my website, osherginsberg.com. Sign up to the mailing list. I'll let you know about what's coming up on the show. The best thing you can do for me for this show is to rate it and comment in the iTunes store, but I know that you know sucks. So um, the very best thing you can do for me is find someone you care about that think might – like this show, pick up their phone, download a podcasting app or put a podcasting app on their phone and load up a couple of podcasts. I would recommend Michelle Laurie's Nitty-gritty committee, Tofop, Greg Proop's the smartest man in the world, and possibly this one. Just load them up a few shows and set them on their way. Um, that would be the best thing to do if you could show me show me some support by showing your friends this show, that would be Ace. I hope your week was OK. It's been a heavy week for everyone, I think. Um, Thank you very much to all the great support that you gave me last week on uh, online, on email, in person. I'm very, very, very grateful. A lot of emails, a lot of texts, a lot of support. Thank you very much. It's been a big week in the world, hasn't it? Not a lot of joy happening on our TVs and on our computer screens, devastations overseas, executions in Indonesia, very, very tough days for everyone, for everyone. Um, I don't know about you, but I, Certainly had to have some uncomfortable conversations with close mates about how they, how they felt regarding the death penalty. You know, the conversations came up and talking with, you know, blokes I know. And they go, yeah, yeah, mate. And it's like, well, hang on. You're my friend. You've been my friend for years. And uh, now we're suddenly, we differ greatly on this. And I had to had to hold my reactionary, you know, self back. And, you know, I struggled to understand their position, but eventually I understood their position. I don't agree with their position, but I accept their position, but geez, it did it did hit me, <clears throat> hit me for six. It really hit me for six. But I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure many people have had this conversation this week, um, but you know, just for the record, for me, um, let's say, for example, what's the most heinous crime? The, the, the chap, the person, <laughs> that orchestrated and manipulated the Snowtown murders in South Australia in the late 90s and early 2000s. I mean, while what that person did mm, makes me want to vomit in my mouth, how he manipulated so many people, destroyed hundreds of lives, just and despicable, heinous, heinous crimes. For me, even though I'm disgusted by the fact that he did what he did i would never want to give that person a death sentence because for for me if i were to advocate that it would put me i become him that's what i'm saying i become i become him so even though there's a cost to society to you know feed and incarcerate this person until they leave this planet I'm willing to pay that price. I'm willing to pay that price. It's because I I feel that if I were to advocate the execution of a person like that, as disgusted I am, as I am by what that person did, I then become the same as that person. And I would never want to value my life over someone else's life that gives me the opportunity to say or the right to say I'm worth more than you are, so therefore you don't get to live. So anyway, I had to have that conversation with a few people this week, actually. i spoke to some friends about it and they said they've lost close mates over it. Um, and, you know, we have a, a fairly small country in Australia. and So I'm sure everyone knows someone who's been affected by what happened. Um, so it's no accident at all. In fact, that today's guest is from Indonesia. He is one of my favorite human beings on the planet. He is the kindest, smartest, most compassionate man that I know. Um, Because much like listening to Princess Rima from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, because I had never met a woman from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and I was grateful that I was able to bring that conversation to you. I really wanted to share with you the wonderful, giving beautiful, glowing vibe that emanates out of Wempy Deoctocoto. Wempy is, he's pretty much the Richard Branson of Indonesia. He's the CEO of over 20 companies. He's an advisor and a board member to many more. He's a venture capitalist. One of the companies he's CEO of is Water and Oxford, a business that basically turns other businesses around. He's like Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction. He rocks up and he says, do this, do that and we're all going to come out of here smelling like roses and you know what happens. He's brilliant at what he does. He's a motivational speaker. He travels all around the world, all around Indonesia um, doing motivational speaking, and he's passionate about bringing his beloved country of Indonesia up to speed with the rest of the world. He's so dedicated to that. Now I know this week there's a lot of pain, regarding Indonesia and regarding Australia. And so I really wanted to share with you the voice of a man that I feel represents the future of that country more than any other. Like over 90% of his countrymen, Wempey's Muslim. And you'll hear how his kindness, his love, and his compassion for his, his fellow man just rings off of every word that he says. And on top of all of this, Wempy is the Australian immigrant story. He came to Australia from a small village in West Java, uh, sorry, Western Sumatra. He came to Australia as a small child. His parents overstayed their visa. So essentially, they were illegal immigrants. However, following the Australian government's amnesties in 1976 and the one they used in 1980, they were granted citizenship and welcomed into our great nation. You'll hear me look this up. Because I didn't know about it. They kept that one kind of on the the DL, didn't they? It happened before. I wish it would happen again. I wish it would happen again. So I'm a firm believer that we all want the same thing. Be it the people in the village that Wempy grew up in, the people in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, or families in deep, dark, hot Western Queensland. We all want the same thing. We all want three meals a day, safety, security, and that our kids might just do a little better than we do. That's international. That feeling transcends borders, politics, race, whatever. I also feel it's really important to talk to someone or see the country that you hear stuff about before you form your own opinion. A lot will be said about Indonesia and Australia in the coming weeks and months, but besides what the politicians say, have a listen to what the people say. Not just the agitated, shouty people, but the people who are busy getting on with making this country and their country a better place to be. I'm very happy that I can introduce you to the nicest, smartest, kindest, most compassionate, smartest, most successful person that I know that I am lucky enough to call a friend. He's not, but I like to call him the Prince of Indonesia, Wempy Diokdakoto. I love your
1: podcast, by the way, and they're really awesome. Oh, thanks, man! Really, and um, I like to listen to them while I'm walking. So I've, I've done it done walking down the streets of London, yeah, right. walking down the streets of like New York, just like I'm with you the, the whole way. way. Yeah, oh, that's no But idea. it's really nice, you know. So there have been some really good, there have been some really good moments that you know that I just you, know, you have a really nice, laugh. just really nice insights too. You get, thanks, some, really you get some really interesting yeah, guests. Yeah,
2: I'm 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 really I'm really grateful to mm. to to do it and. And we were just talking about opportunity cost before, but the reverse is true for this show. It costs me time and money to do. Mm. Yet the value that I get out of it is far more, far, far more. What it's exposed to me business-wise, what it's exposed to me work-wise, what it's exposed to me with thinking Mm. and ideas, it's far more valuable than the time and money it costs me to do it. I love it. (laughs)
1: it's really it's great i mean everybody's learning out of it
2: yeah yeah it's great well wimpy i'm so glad you're here mate thank you thank you so much for coming to my uh my hotel in in Bondo on this rainy day you you turned up to sydney and it's just hey it's a cyclone (laughs) where have you come from
1: i just got in from um uh from jakarta flew over to bali and then straight over to darwin and then over to sydney so here i am wow
2: but you um you're let me just firstly paint the picture I'll do a lot of this in the intro but I want to kind of get an idea from you you're CEO and advisor to more than 20 companies you're pretty much a citizen of the world um you're a business development guy what what would you say your job is
1: (laughs) can we start off with a true question yeah um yeah I uh, more than anything I serve as an advisor now yeah yeah probably that's that's a good way to sum up
2: yeah an advisor for business development yeah right yeah. but I mean we met you're one of my many guests that I've I've met through the think school in Amsterdam and uh, we met uh, just a little over a year ago in, in Amsterdam and I met you and you said oh you're up in Sydney well, that's great. I never actually I asked you, how did you come to Sydney? What how did a kid from Indonesia end up in Sydney?
1: Well, I actually I was born in a little village called Parang Panjang in Sumatra, in West Sumatra. Um and uh, you know, when I was when I was uh, a kid, when I, I had I had no say in, in, in the world, um my parents moved over to Sydney from, from Sumatra. And I guess it was just simply because Indonesia had just come through a um tw- just twenty years earlier had gone uh, had declared independence and then uh, my grandparents decided that this was not the right place to raise your kids for my parents um and so i think they had a couple of options whether it was going to be europe whether it was going to be anywhere else but um basically came over to australia and uh, started from zero
2: this is the end of seventy
1: immigrant 70 probably about 75 yeah about about 70 yeah 75 mid 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 to late 70s yeah
2: and you say they started with from zero. 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 How did they come to Australia? By plane? By plane. Yeah, right. And this was right when Malcolm Fraser had changed Australia by firstly allowing Vietnamese in. And it's crazy to think that before that, that only kind of really white people were allowed to get immigration visas. What reception did your parents get when they
1: arrived? So we'd probably be one of the first Indonesians to ever arrive. I mean, the first... Uh... Immigrant Indonesians to arrive because yes. obviously there was a lot of Indonesian uh, back and forth, you mm-hmm. know, north north of Australia, etc. But um, we would be the first uh, proper immigrants of Australia, uh, proper Indonesian immigrants of Australia. Um, I myself, uh, I've never experienced any racism, and neither have my parents. I've 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 never heard any like stories of racism that they've experienced, nor have I. So I've always had um, uh, a really wonderful experience of Australia. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. No, what so did it's, they
2: do in Indonesia and then what did they have to Because I know my parents, my grandparents had to, my grandfather who was like a head of the medical school in Lithuania had to turn up and become a bus driver because they were like, no, no, we don't care about your degree. <laughs> we, you, we don't believe you. You've got to go and do another job while you restudy. What did your parents do over there and what did they have to do when they came here?
1: Well, my parents owned chemists. So uh, they owned chemists all around uh, various cities, etc. cetera, um, weren't – my my grandfather was like the mayor of uh mayor of Padang uh, Panjang which was like the village there um and he owned a, a number of enterprises everything from like transport uh through to he ran um one of Indonesia's first ever cinemas he, ah. owned, he owned one of Indonesia's first cinemas because he had a really fond and a uh, love of foreign culture uh but then um uh, thereafter uh when they came over to show they started off just like as immigrants. And I remember my f- dad's first job here was uh possibly at a, what was it? At a at some sort of me- metal factory or something like that. So you know, it really started off from zero.
2: Wow. And and mm. were you raised with what kind of work ethic were you raised with? Were you aware that we've got to push to make it here, kids? Was it that kind of thing?
1: Well the thing is I was I was raised firstly when I went to primary school it was in an area called Campsie which is a very working class immigrant uh, immigrant suburb and so um everything just seemed normal to me it seemed like everybody else's parents worked in factories mm-hmm. or worked in uh, uh you know there weren't many white collar workers around 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 my area so it just seemed that that was the norm um yeah mm-hmm.
2: Right, so that's just that's just kind of how it was. You got many brothers and
1: sisters. I got two brothers and sisters. I yeah. got one brother and one sister. Older or younger? Both older.
2: Right, yeah. so you're the they were they were a bit older. So you all go to the same school?
1: Yeah, we all went to the same school.
2: Yeah, yeah. You, I'm guessing you're the only Indonesian kids at that school.
1: No, well, we were originally, and then after that, a few more started to struggle in. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, we, if you if you looked at our school photos when we were young, it was all a bunch of white kids plus. <laughs>
2: And so you, you know, did you have many memories of Indonesia?
1: No, I didn't really. The only thing is that I, I didn't ever want to leave Indonesia because I was really happy there as, as, as a child. I probably would have been about three, four, five or so when I, when I left Indonesia. And I remember when my dad came back to Indonesia to pick me up, I was like hiding behind the chairs and not wanting to leave. Um because I yeah I, I didn't know what was out there and then I came to Australia and it was just uh, everything was just so much better, wasn't it? right so, so I was I was literally like you know the Eddie Murphy from uh, from village, to America coming to America but like coming <laughs> to Australia.
2: Did your father find his way back into the pharmacy game?
1: No, he never he yeah. never did actually he never did actually um he we he continued to work in uh you know in immigrant jobs. Um, but then thereafter, uh, you know, luck's, luck kind of strikes here in Australia, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think that's one thing that Australia and America have parallels of is that, uh, you know, it's a very lucky country, even and more so than an America. probably How did
2: that luck manifest?
1: Um, you know, just through property, through yeah. different things. Um, that uh, you know, obviously, property prices have really like surged in Australia, and suddenly, like people who weren't millionaires are millionaires now, right? Yeah, right. And uh, and people, uh, you know, I mean, like Australia now is one of the most powerful economies in the world. It
2: really is. It really is. Yeah, yeah, it really the is. A guy I used to surf with, actually, he lives four doors down from here. He tells a story about he was in that first wave as a kid of Vietnamese immigrants, and they came on a boat with nothing, nothing. And they bought a bakery, or they started working in a bakery. They bought the bakery and then started buying all the land and property around the bakery. And now they own just like whole city blocks. And this is within the space of not even 40 years. All right. And I remember hearing his story and going, and yet people go to the streets and say, they're taking our jobs they have working 16 hours a day every day for seven years with just the same opportunities that every other person has. And it's, it's kind of interesting that people, when they get here, having not grown up here, they go, oh, my goodness, what this place is, let's make the most of it, versus this is what I've always had. You know, we just have this ability as Australians, I think, to be so complacent about what we have here. That's something when you spend time away in other cultures. I mean, even in America, where I have lived for a long time, there's 47 million people living on food stamps over there. It's <laughs> that's crazy. That's a
0: lot of people
2: yeah. living below the poverty line. Including Gwyneth Paltrow, right? Oh, goodness, yeah. How was that? For four days she managed it. Wow, that, that was interesting. So primary school and then... How did, um, did you go to high school out there
1: in Camp C as well? No, I went over to Kings River North high school, which is, uh, you know, pretty close by there. But then I made a decision and I said to myself, you know, um, had I, cause, cause I'd always been like a straight A student or well, do we have straight A's? Yeah. I mean, like I'd always been a mm-hmm. really good student. Um, and then after that, when I got to about year nine and year 10, the whole sort of popularity bug started to hit me and I wanted to hang out and, you know, not, mm-hmm. not really do much work. Um, and then after that, uh, you know, my sister completed her HSC, and she'd done well in the HSC, and I thought, okay, I've got to sort my life out.
2: That's like our high school certificate. That's the the score you get that decides which university
1: course you get into. Exactly, yeah. and I wanted to follow down that path, so I decided to shift over from uh, from Kingsworth North High School over to Vaucluse High School, which is just down there.
2: Right, so I sh- where this is, a, and this is a fairly high socioeconomic area. It is, area in fact, probably one of the highest in Sydney. Absolutely. And so, I'm imagining going from a blue collar kind okay. of high school to a, I'll see that yacht out in the harbour. Yeah, that's Dad's Weekender. How did that change what you thought or saw as possible in the world?
1: It made the world bigger. Yeah, it definitely made the world bigger. It and it uh, really, um, I think it, uh, it it screwed me up. A lot, also, because uh, having come from where I had come from, and having seen what I'd seen, and then now uh, being at that influential age when you're about sixteen or so, and seeing everything so much bigger, everything amplified, everybody a lot wealthier, everybody a lot more sort of uh, savvy about everything, I think it really um, screws you up mentally, also, and you feel that you have to keep up with all the, mm. you know, the, you know, the wealth around you. But um, I tried not to let that uh, affect me. And I just pretty much focus on the academia, mm-hmm. like, you know, on on, on the academia, and, and get that sort of stuff done. But I also, you know, I had um, I had I had uh, particular issues too because, like, when I was like fourteen and nine months, because my my father had um, uh, my my father had stuff in Bondi also. They even had a cafe just around the corner. Oh, also right. Here at uh, at Roscoe Street, just by oh, yeah. by Campbell Parade. So. Um, uh, so I decided when I was 14 and nine months to follow a few friends of mine also and get a job at McDonald's. And so I, because that's the legal age of working here in in Australia. Yeah. So I got a job at McDonald's and my dad found out and I got in a lot of trouble. Why? Yeah, because it was just, he, he wanted me to really focus on my education then. And so uh, getting a job and wanting to be like, all the, other, all the other kids here that were, um, you know, a lot of them were, you know, obviously very wealthy, um, but a lot of them also wanted to have summer jobs too. So I wanted a summer job. Mm. I also wanted to go surfing at Bondi or some boogie boarding. I mm. wanted to be part of that sort of culture, the surf culture also. And so just the desire to fit in um, really, uh, you know, really clashed with my parents' sorts of ideals. And so, you know, within about three months or so, I had to give up my job at McDonald's and yeah. uh, get back to studies. Right. But, um, you learned to surf out here? Well, I wouldn't say I learned to surf because I can't say that I like, know how to surf properly. <laughs> but um, yeah, boogie boarded and, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and and the basics of surfing. But, uh, you know, I more than anything, it really showed me the possibilities of, of, of the world.
2: Right. And I, I'm imagining that like, we do have those times in our life where we have our target on a horizon and then some new information comes to us, we meet someone who's of similar age or, someone, or big someone's big brother who's just come back from somewhere and suddenly our perspective shifts and go, wow. Was there any moment like that when you suddenly realized that much more was available to you?
1: Yeah. And I think we all have uh, the power to control that too. Who, um, you know, obviously we are a product of the five or so sort of people that we spend most time with and a product of our environments. But uh, I had many of those moments, and I think we have to create those moments for ourselves where we don't get too comfortable because even now, um, where I am, I'm, I'm very comfortable right now in life, but I've got to now shift too. I, I, I feel the urge to shift mm-hmm. and accelerate it and, and elevate it to a different level too. But yeah, I've had many of those moments. I've had moments where I've, uh, you know, uh, coming from where I've come from, been in, you know, like my, you know, gone over to just basic stuff, like going over to your friend's place after school yeah. and then realizing that they lived in a, like a three-story mansion, you know, that overlooked Parsley Bay or, or Watson's Bay, et cetera. So these things like that, they can really screw up with a kid's mind, but they can also really open it up too, so.
2: I think they can screw up an adults mind as well. I mean, I've, uh, a few years ago now, maybe four years ago, five years ago, I went skiing at a private resort that you can't, you have to be invited into. With private ski lifts, people have like $25 million houses on the side of the main run that they live in for 10 days a year, right? This kind of stuff. And I stood around and went, and these guys are seven years older than me, and it really kind of messed with my idea of what I have achieved and my achievements. And it, so I think that that sort of stuff does go on. That w- w- I think any time you compare yourself to, to somebody else, it's unfair to both you and them because neither of you have at all similar circumstances. You may both be, you know, people, <laughs> but the opportunities or anything are, are very dissimilar.
1: But at some stage, you take control of that and you sort of say, well, you know, right now I'm in a different position to what I was. Well, the thing is that we've never been without money. My family has never been without money. My family has never been without the privileges that we've had. We've had extraordinary privileges, um, you know, which I'm extraordinary. It sounds like
2: money that they worked
1: hard for. Money that they worked hard for. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's not like that they came over here and we've got a big trust fund waiting for us.
1: Well, they started from zero. And when you start from zero, you have – You know what's on your mind? Your mind is not just money. Your mind is, is the immigration department going to catch me, Hmm. right? Because you come under those circumstances to start off with. My parents came under those circumstances to start off with, right? Because they came here as illegal immigrants.
2: Get out. Yeah. Your parents came here illegally? My
1: parents came here as illegal immigrants to start off with. But then after the amnesty came through and all these different things. So these things happen. And Hang
2: on, so how, what, they came on a holiday visa and then just overstayed? Oh, I think,
1: yeah, I think I think they came here on, um, well, they, they came over to Australia and they they came here to, yeah, they had a couple of options. I think they were going to go to Europe or they were going to go to Australia, or whatever. And then they came here and they, over, they decided to overstay. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it was a decision to overstay. And then, yeah, but then Amnesty came through, which was uh, Australia's way of saying, okay, we all now accept illegal immigrants as, People we want to integrate and people when, we When was that? God goodness, I think probably 80s. about seven years eight, late eighties or late. Have a 70s, 80s. Uh, when did the amnesty come through? Australian
2: uh, immigrant amnesty can't spell uh, uh, nineteen seventy-six and nineteen eighty. Let me have a look here. Sorry, we're looking at the Australian Department of... Uh, I can't spell with one hand. Uh, 1976 to 1980, the Department ran two programs offering amnesty to people who had overstayed their visa and allowing them to regularise their status. All right, that's um, from the Department of Immigration and Citizenship's website. Wow. So we've done it before. We've done it twice. I never knew that. That's crazy. Isn't that amazing? That it's, it's a part That's of why it.
1: Australia is the lucky country. It isn't
2: really it? is. But that it's a part of our history that we've got, it's happened twice that we've gone, okay, you're here. We see that you're valuable. Come and be a part of us for real rather than this whole thing now, of like go away, leave, go and live on a horrible island somewhere in the South Pacific where you'll never get out of detention. Goodness me.
1: It's amazing. So my parents did come and they did overstay and they were illegal immigrants. But then they're after the embassy came through. You
2: were too at, this, at one point.
1: I was, too, yeah, I was, yeah, I was too then, wasn't I? But um, yeah, but uh, you know, it's all luck, isn't it? Yeah, it's timing. Yeah, it's hard work too. Yeah, and uh, and we're part of that history of Australia. That's amazing.
2: What a beautiful, what a beautiful thing to to be able to recognize the value of people so much to say for a government to say, all right, um, you're. Yeah. You're part of our country, be a part. You're, yeah. you're here, let's make it official. That's beautiful.
1: Yeah. And Australia is an immigrant country, too, isn't it? It's like we are all basically yes. immigrants for the past like, 200 years or so. So it's a matter of just, uh, you know, in waves, of, uh, well, in waves of accepting people. What, what actually um, freaks me out right now is that um, apparently Brits are the number one illegal immigrants here in Australia. So you'd think you and I would think, okay, maybe the Vietnamese or the Chinese or the yeah. uh, Italians. Is, no, the number one illegal immigrants in Australia are the Brits. Don't blame them. Obviously, it's, uh, you okay. know, I, 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 I live in London, so you know the weather's a bit better here in Australia. So yeah. I would probably be an illegal immigrant too. And so. all
2: overstayers. See, this whole narrative yeah. that we're sold that all illegal immigrants are coming by boat. Mm -hmm. it's malarkey thousands come by plane and just forget to get back on
1: yeah that's it intentionally forget to get back intentionally
2: forget to get back on the plane yeah boy that really is that really it does really kind of make you question the narrative that we're sold about how people come to australia and you know i mean my my parents are immigrants my parents both of them immigrants to australia my mum was a refugee when she came here uh, and was taken in by australia in the 40s and you know, just to this whole idea that we're sold that uh, immigrants, immigrants of any type, legal or illegal, are here to destroy our culture, destroy our country, is just completely wrong. It, the reason Australia has great coffee is because of immigrants. <laughs> the reason you can eat hummus and enjoy it is because immigrants.
1: immigrants. Look, the thing. Immigrants play a powerful, powerful role in global economies. We look at America itself, right? And most of the greatest startups in America, everything from like Google with Sergey Brin and Larry, B- immigrants. We look at uh, Facebook. We look at all these different uh, companies, Yahoo, etc., all started off by immigrants. And Australia itself, there's something about the immigrant mentality when you're not, you don't, you don't feel a birthright to the land. You don't feel that, uh, you know, you have. Full privileges and access. You, you, there, there are things that you don't take for granted. That I, for example, as, I as an Indonesian right now, I take many things for granted in Indonesia, right. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if I was an immigrant in Indonesia, and there are plenty of immigrants also that I wouldn't take for granted also. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think th- there's an immigrant mentality that is hugely beneficial for any economy.
2: Abs- absolutely, it does. The, there's there's abuses of any system in any you know yeah. any any kind of system. I remember the. The day I became, uh, an Australian citizen, uh, cause I wasn't born here either. The day I became an Australian citizen in 1999, September 27th, I think it was. Um, I, I was in a suit, I borrowed from wardrobe at Foxtel <laughs> and I came into work. I was late. So I turned up to work and he's like, how am I Australian now? I showed up my certificate and I said, <laughs> yeah, it was great. I was the only white guy in the room. It was awesome. And my floor manager, I won't mention his name, my floor manager says, yeah. And do they all just leave the leave there and go straight to the settling office to start 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 claiming money? Like you racist fuck! Like how dare you? That was but that was what he believed that people are only coming to Australia to bleed a system. I've been on the dole. I can point. To you to thousands of native Australian white people who are abusing that system way more than anyone who's come here on a plane or a boat my goodness me but that's what we're sold and it's completely false
1: well it depends on whose narrative you're listening to truly and, and whose propaganda you're listening to yeah. like when I look at my family and my father's work ethic and my mother's work ethic and my family and my brother and my sister I mean like we're all here to contribute yeah. and we really we, we really have contributed as much as we can, yeah. you know, to the extent that we can. And today, like for example, um, you know, this, this is the miracle of Australia. Australia has Australia creates miracles every day that we're not really aware of. Like um, so my, my 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 brother today, he's um he's a pilot for Qantas. And so um this would not have happened had we grown up in a village in Padang Panjang somewhere in Indonesia. Today, he carries like hundreds of people on a plane all the time to safety, to their family, to their friends, to their mm. dreams, all these different things. And, uh, you know, there's just, you know, we're all, I, I, I believe, I believe in the immigrant story. I believe in the importance of the immigrant story. And I believe in, I I, I believe we don't celebrate it enough. Mm. I believe it becomes a scapegoat mm-hmm. for many issues.
2: Mm-hmm. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, when you were, we're just, we'd, we'd drive let's go back a second here. So, uh, Vaucluse High, uh, everyone's decided, I remember sitting in high school, everyone's deciding what they wanted to do for university. And I had no idea. Did you have a clue of what you wanted to do fairly early?
1: No, absolutely not. I had no idea. Had no idea. Um, I had no idea. And I mean, so it's, it's not-
2: important for people to realize that you don't have to decide your entire career at the age of 17 while you're still in high school and have no scope of the world. It's totally okay to not know. But there's so much pressure, so much pressure to decide.
1: It's nuts. I was academic, but I had no idea whatsoever. And even when I got my HSC results, I didn't even know what I wanted to do. And when I uh, – like, so the story was, was that um, after my HSE results came through, I was actually in Indonesia at that stage in Jakarta. Um, and uh, my brother – it was my mum, my brother and I – and my brother had called up Australia to find out what my HSE results were to, to surprise me. And then um, and then after the results came through, um, I said to my mom, well, you know, I don't know what I should do. And she handed me, uh, you know, we looked through like the UAC, the University's admi- administ- Admissions uh, mm-hmm. sort of course book. And she said, well, maybe you should do this course, which is a communications degree. And I didn't know what communications was. I thought it was like telecommunications and I had to like lay down cables for like, <laughs> For, like, you know, like Tel- Telstra or Telecom or whatever yeah, it was yeah. called at that sort of stage, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then um, I realized it was advertising and PR and marketing and all these different things. And hey, well, that was it.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, so I'm very thankful. So my mother made my decision for me. Right. Because I didn't know what I wanted to do.
2: And how did you find you went to U- UTS <laughs> in in Ultimo in Sydney, right next to the ABC building? Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, what was that like? What was university like after going to a uh, Vaucluse High, which is all very, why should we go skiing? Austria or Japan? Like, <laughs> what was it like to go head into the, uh, the inner West of Sydney and go to uni there?
1: No, it was good. Well, the thing about UTS, was a bit of a revolving door in that because it was located in the city, um, you know, like people walked in and walked out according to whatever their classes it wasn't i don't think it was like an oxford or a harvard where people would like spend 90% of their time on campus and mm-hmm. being part of you know some sort of a campus feel so people kind of walked in and walked out and i kind of did the same thing also but i was i was passionate about what i did so you know whenever there was like classes i would really like immerse myself in and sometimes it got a bit too theoretical Mm-hmm. Whereas I love the practical aspects of communications, but, uh, you yeah, know, it was it was, it was it was a great degree.
2: And how early did you see the possibility of what your career might become?
1: Well, it was actually very early on, actually, and uh, I, I should thank my brother uh, because what I wanted to do with the mark that I got from my HSC, I could have done law and I could have, uh, you know, practiced or, or, or done, done law, etc. cetera. But um, he said to me, Wemp, um, you're not going to suit doing law. Because if you wanted to live and work internationally, et cetera, you could only practice law in New South Wales, even if you wanted to practice in Victoria. Or, or and he stuff. could
2: see that you're an international kind of guy.
1: Well, he could see that uh, I, you know, he, <laughs> he could see that, uh, you know, I wanted to see a bit of the world. Yeah. So, so yeah. So there was some good, there, there was some good instructional advice from him right. that not to do law. And anyway, I'm not a person who follows the rules anyway And nobody has ever, like, come to me for rules Or or, or sort of guidance In that sort of way So, you know, um, communications allows you to be as Lazy or as creative as you can be
2: (laughs) And you, – but you went on to then do a master's degree. Yeah,
1: I did to satisfy my dad because dad's sort of philosophy was that, Wimpy, don't wait till you're 30 to do your master's degree mm-hmm. simply because um, he reckons that my brain would have tuned out by then and I would have been so immersed in career and work, etc., that I might as well get everything out of the way. It's
2: kind of right. Which I did. Yeah, he's kind of right.
1: Well, I, I do thank – I do thank him for that. I do thank him for that. And there was no sweat off my back also. It was just an, an additional year. Mm. Um, but – um and that was over at Sydney University, which is not too far from, you know, which is over at Newtown sort of way. But, um, yeah, I did, I, did, I did that.
2: And so when university ended, was there, uh, I don't know how it works, are there graduate um, recruitment programs here in Australia? Did people come looking for you? Did you go looking for people?
1: No, well, actually by the end of my bachelor's degree, I'd been offered a job at American Express. So before oh. I'd even finished my degree, they'd offered me a job. How did they find you? Um, it was just serendipity, I guess, because they were looking for somebody to become an analyst for the Asia Pacific region. So people with various skills, yeah. etc. So you know, which which I kind of fitted into. Uh-huh. So I um I'd already worked at American Express, and my uh, you know my first salary was like thirty thousand dollars a year, which is like pretty exciting and. Um, you know, I worked in a team and realized what it's like, what it like, felt like to work for a multinational, et cetera. So, um, but then thereafter, after uh, working there, well, while I was working there, I got offered a scholarship also that I could do my master's and they would fund. Um, wow. Could have the master's? I suppose they wanted to keep me for a bit.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs> and so... Then you're off and running. Yeah. Then you're, you know, suits and tires and five days a week and let's go.
1: Yeah, well I was working like five days a week plus trying to do university on top of that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah right.
1: I'm lucky it was a pass fail course. It was like a you know, it wasn't he <laughs> <laughs> wasn't like No, actually no, no, actually UTS was like a pass fail course. Um, Sydney was more like a high distinction or distinction credit uh-huh. fail and all that. But you know, I I I tried I I tried to do what I could with what I had.
2: What kind of things did you learn from the culture at American Express that you still that still, oh, still use today?
1: I love I love American Express's blue box values, and I think they were awesome. That's
2: what they that's what they call that's them. what
1: they call them. They call them blue box values, and it's about treating people that the way that you want to be treated, being good members of the community. You know, just all really lovely things about how you should collaborate with people, and I think that's one thing that um, I that still sticks with me today, and in, in in terms of. Um, how you should be with how you should be with people. How you should work with people. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: you've uh, you, you started. You said earlier that you knew you wanted to travel. Your brother, your whole family knew you wanted to travel. How do you like? How often? You, I'm guessing you could have stayed at American Express here in Sydney, and that would have been fine. When did you go? You know what? I'm really getting itchy feet here. What was the catalyst to to make it maybe make a move?
1: Okay, so the story actually is goes a little something like this so i um uh i was working at american express and my parents didn't uh, want me to waste my money because you know with with you know the whole sort of immigrant thing and wemp, you know stop spending your money and start saving your money etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's so not australian like I'm, so, <laughs> is I mean, it is
2: australia you are australian uh it's so not uh like tr- like white australia is like Man, i'm just gonna buy a giant ute and a 65 inch tv and like just <laughs> People throw money away and the silliest things here. Sorry. It is it's a very it's a very immigrant thing to like hold on to every dollar. Well, it?
1: you know, my my, my parents stuff, They were they were they were seeing me spending my money on frivolous stuff anyway. They they, they saw me going out all the time You're and a well dressed man,
2: Wimpy. Those clothes aren't gonna buy themselves, <laughs>
1: mate. <laughs> no, but um but uh, so they, they helped me out. And by that stage, my parents had owned a lot of assets. know, anyway, my, my parents had owned homes and land and property and all these different things that they had worked hard for, both here as I well as overseas. I love hearing stories like
2: that. I love hearing stories like that.
1: And um, so, so, yeah, so they had built up, uh, you know, a reasonable net worth. So what they did was that they, um, they said to me, okay, Wemp, we're going to help you with your first property. So by the age of about 19 or 20 or so, I bought my first ever property. Um, but uh, what I did, because had I, because I'd gone to Vaucluse High School, because I'd seen that, so I chose my area as well. So the first ever property, property that I bought was at Victoria Street in Potts Point. Ah! So, <laughs> so, yep. so smack bang right in the beautiful eastern suburbs. Yeah. So I bought uh, my first property at about in nineteen or twenty or so at Potts Point, and then after that, I just kept on. My Saturdays were filled with like real estate agents, if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. Not too long thereafter, I bought my next property at Darling Point, uh-huh. uh, just out on Mona Road in Darling Point. And then thereafter... Um, uh, these are,
2: I just want to point out, these are now some of the most expensive, highest-worth property places in Sydney. Uh, so I'm assuming like a few years ago when you bought them, it would have been... They've, they've since been gentrified quite a lot. But there was particularly in um, the, the first place you mentioned, in Potts Point. Uh, you know, it was pretty pretty rough, pretty rough. But then as the years passed, it kind of cleaned up and it's, it's far different now. So you were certainly ahead of the wave there. Good yeah. for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I'd moved on from like Potts Point over to Darling Point. And then thereafter, I bought another apartment just at the Hyde Park Plaza across the office at Liverpool Street in Sydney. Um, and uh, and also I've got a place over at uh, Willamooloo, the Finger Wharf. Cool, man. So, so I kind of like in my early twenties, from about nineteen through to about twenty-four or twenty, sort of odd, sort of, I had acquired a lot of properties. How did you, so owned, How did you do owned it? Over a million, sort of, yeah, owned, owned owned a lot of.
2: So, hang on. So, how did you do it? So, your folks helped you out with the first one. Yeah. So then, how did you leverage that to the second
1: one? Well, you know, um, rent would come in all the time, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. And then mortgages would get paid off, mm-hmm. wouldn't they? And then after that, uh, you'd buy another property. You'd buy another property. How do you
2: buy the another property? You you, you because, leverage it off the yeah, first one. Leverage
1: it off the first one. Wow.
2: See, I never knew this stuff when I left. I didn't know this kind of stuff was possible. By the time I was twenty four, I did not have four properties in the eastern <laughs> side of the city. I, I I had drunk a lot of beer uh, <laughs> and I was working in the radio in the middle of the night. But I certainly didn't know that you could do this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think I think I owe that to my mother. Just she she, she told me to get she taught me to get smart with my money. Right. And so it was a matter of just uh trusting in somebody, so you were saying trusting in somebody, trusting in your mother and yeah. uh, and before you know it, I'd owned quite a bit of good property and see. so
2: that you know I'm assuming then that starts to bring you a bit of an income that's yeah. independent of a job, so yeah. it gives you a lot more freedom
1: definitely yeah definitely, yeah, and i you know i lived i lived a good life in the eastern suburbs too right so so i I think it was a matter of years, and this is what the, this is the thing about um like, for example, when I made that conscious move to move over to Vaucluse High School and I saw a world beyond my world, then years later, I created that world for you, myself. Yeah, you did. And, um, but, you know, the thing is that you never really, I never really got to enjoy it, too. And I never allowed it to get the better of me, too. It never made me arrogant, I hope. It never made me feel like I was something different or something different because I was always searching for something better, something, something bigger or something different. And so, by 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 my mid twenties or so, material wasn't something that really sexed me up anymore. If you know what I mean. So now, when I go to like my friends or families or different people's places, and they live in huge homes and huge mansions and have all the, none of that really sort of appeals to me anymore because I. have gone past that that's just that's that's like teenage beverly hills 90210 sort of stuff and i'm not interested in that anymore so yeah
2: so you said that you're always looking for something more something bigger how often do you recalibrate where Uh, you're going what you're looking for
1: you know i don't have a particular sort of timeline for Mm recalibrating, but like when i look at the patterns of my life they tend to happen every five years Uh there's a different level of maturity there's a different level of there is a different direction that i want to take my life to and I think that that's just a pattern that I see with myself, but uh, each to their own, you're right, yeah,
2: so if people listening to this maybe you know you know I talk a lot on this show a lot about that you have the opportunity like every day you can create how you want to create that day, exactly. and that like that's the only way I do anything once I stopped trying to do things, making decisions for the rest of my life, and just starting to make decisions for today, even just between now and lunch, it was a lot easier, uh. How often do you think people should have a look at where they're going and Check, their, to check check their direction?
1: I think it should be really constant, actually. Yeah. I think it really should be constant. Um, and if nothing is challenging you, if nothing is making you feel uncomfortable, if nothing is inspiring, then you really need to just uh, turn the key on another door.
2: Right. And what about the people who want to hold those doors open just in case something happens?
1: Well, I don't <laughs> think you can live your life hedging your bets, can't you? Yeah. And most of us want to hedge our bets because we want to feel safe, but we also want opportunity too. And I think you've got to pick one or the other. And I'd go pick opportunity. And that's what I'm always searching for too now. Security to me, I don't think the purpose of life is security. I think it's a false illusion. And I think security you create security in opportunities.
2: How does that manifest?
1: It manifests in the fact that uh, you know, like, if I wanted security, I'd be in Sydney too right now, right? I'd be in Sydney lapping up, lapping up the luxuries, lapping up what I've worked for, um, or I'd be in Singapore, I'd be in London, I'd be doing whatever I'm, you know, lapping it up. But no, I'm constantly on the go. I live more in a suitcase than I do in a big home. I, um, I, uh, I am engaged in in things that don't reflect my net worth or my lack of net worth or my, my, my privilege of net worth, it's, it's, what I do is not related to that. Um, what I, the people that I engage with are people that inspire me. Mm-hmm. So that's how it manifests in my life.
2: And that brings you a sense of security?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's that security in, um, yeah, it does. It brings me that sense of security.
2: But I suppose you know, setting yourself up early, Setting yourself up early 2024 with that real estate scenario that gave you that base, that parachute, if you needed it, must have given you so much freedom to make decisions.
1: It gives you freedom. But I also say that uh, I also believe that one of the greatest things that you can do at the age of 20 is lose. Is not about winning, winning, winning. Is not about acquiring, 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 which is what I did on Saturdays when I lived in Sydney. Is about all about acquisition and acquiring, and you know, moving on to the next best thing. But no, I believe that your 20s are best lost. Um, that you lose yourself in your 20s. You lose yourself in your dreams. You lose yourself in your um, uh, you lose yourself in your ambitions. You lose yourself in, in in the cause, in the pursuit of yourself, in your community, and other people. Um, because by the time you hit about 30 or so, you would have lost so much of yourself. That you would have gained so much more out of out of that whole experience so yeah that's i
2: think i, I, was, I think i was about 10 10 years late on that one <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's okay that's okay
1: that's okay because those years are never actually lost yeah those years are never actually lost because when you're immersed in something that's when you are at your greatest when you're consciously trying to pursue something, you're not your greatest then. But when you're lost and you're immersed because you love it and you're recording something, if you're an artist, if you're recording something mm-hmm. and you're drawing something and you're suffering for your for your passion, I think that's a great thing.
2: You you've worked at many different places. But I didn't want to ask you before we get on to the, the VC stuff that you do, which is Humongous, uh, you, you worked at one of the firms that I've admired for a long time. You worked at Ogilvy for a while, which I've always been fascinated by David Ogilvy and Howie. How we were. What was what was the culture like
1: there? The culture is very dog-eat-dog. Dog. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to ruin you. No, mind. no, no, it's fine. But um, no, so I worked for WPP for about um, about seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. So I worked at Ogilvie and Mather as well as um, Young and Rubicum as well as Wonderman, and they're all part of the same Martin mm-hmm. Sorrell WPP group. Um, I think uh, they are great communication specialists and you know whether you're a, a client services guy which is what I was or a suit um, which is uh, sorry or a, or a creative person art director or copyright mm. etc I think it's um I, I I think it you you really are working with the creme de la creme yeah. of of the communications industry and I think one of my greatest experiences working in the advertising and communications industry was when I moved over to London Um in about at, at about 2006 or so, I was transferred from WPP, the WPP office in Singapore, over to London, um, and I worked with a gent by the name of Steve Harrison. And Steve Harrison is the most awarded uh, direct marketing or marketing person that uh, you've probably not heard of, but um, he's extraordinary. They, you know, they, you know, they talked about building a statue for him in Soho, but I actually got the opportunity to work directly with him in um, in uh, in London. So, um... that's
2: the fire alarm going off. It happened yesterday too. Fantastic.
1: Yeah. Should we be running or should we be? Uh...
2: Well, the fire alarm went off yesterday when I was downstairs uh, uh, at a cafe downstairs in this building. No one cared. <laughs> no one did anything. People just went away at their business. It's, just a, it's kind of like turbulence in an airplane, you know? If you see the crew panic, then you panic. If the crew don't panic, just chill.
1: That's very unlike my brother. And I'll tell you why.
2: Come on, man. It's messing up my recording. All right, and I'm going to pause this until this emergency stops. But so which kind
1: of, um, which kind of reminds me also of that fire alarm.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. So one of the things that my brother. We're does, recording again. Brother. Okay.
0: Yeah,
1: I want to thank your brother. <laughs> so one of the things that my brother does when he checks into a hotel. So when I check into a hotel, I just ask for the quietest room or yeah. somewhere far and you know with a nice view, etc. So one of my, the things that my brother does is that when he checks in, he doesn't mind what room he gets, but uh, the bellboy or whatever, he'll ask. So where's the, uh, can you can you advise me where the exit, where the emergency exit is, and um, you know they'll they'll advise him. they I was down there, there. So he'll see the emergency exit. I'm like, why do you always ask for that? Why yeah. do you always ask for the emergency exit? It's like, well, if something was to happen in the middle of the night at this hotel, then I'd be able, like to be able to direct everybody to get out. Uh, That's my brother. Right. He is ultra safe.
2: I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of the same in, uh, in hotels. I always check the emergency exit. I always check on planes. Really? Whenever I get on a plane, I always, always book a seat within five rows of the emergency exit. Every single time, really, and I read the card every single time, without fail. I always read the card.
1: You're one of the few, then. I count the rows.
2: I count the rows between me and the exit. I remember what side it is, and because I read a book called Deep Survival by a guy called Lawrence Gonzalez, change your life. Now I'm not, by no means, am I paranoid, and, and, and nor am I afraid to fly. I fly all the time, and I love it. I think jet flight's amazing. It's damaging for the environment. I try to offset as often as I can by carbon offsets for my planes, but the other thing he talks about in this book is identify the people between you and the exit, because, and he identifies, you know, he goes through in the five hundred times since 1950 that people have had to evacuate planes. Here's the people that got out. Here's why the exits got stopped. Here's a da da da. So he's like, if you see, like for example, an, an old lady, like someone from my mum's age, someone who's 75, he's like, you've got to get on the other side of her. You've got to get in front of her, not because she's going to slow you up, but so you can pull her through. Because if she gets stuck at the exit, then it blocks it for everyone. So he's very much about the idea of look at the kind of people. And the other fact that freaked me out, those exits are 22 inches wide. They sell plane tickets to people who are far wider than 22 inches. That blows my mind. Blows my mind that people are getting on planes, buying tickets, getting on planes, probably not knowing that they're too big to get out of it if there's going to be a problem. I Sideways, think. no. Like, but come on, you've been to America. You've seen the kind of people that <laughs> you've seen the, the size yeah. of. You've seen the size of human beings that that arrive in America.
1: Oh goodness,
2: yeah, but good, yeah. That's well, anyway, a good practice. so that's, that's what thing. I – anyway. Back to you, Wempy. Um, so now you are one of the biggest things you work. And I would say, what is it? Water Oxford, the biggest yeah, thing. Water you Water in Oxford, on? yeah. Okay, uh, that's a VC firm
1: it's a global business development agency. So I work with uh, a, some small startups that just uh, you know that, that that are just kicking off, to some startups in Series A and do, valued at a few million, mm-hmm. to some big companies like Accor and et cetera. So yeah, so mm-hmm. I, work with a I think this
2: companies. hotels in Accor Hotel. Oh,
1: there you go, one of my clients, <laughs>
2: one of our clients. Actually. And So what does what does business development look like?
1: Yeah, it means that uh, we help companies expand their businesses locally and internationally. So it's something that I've essentially been doing for the past like 15 or 20 years of my life since I was about, um, you know, since I started at American Express. So just uh, helping them. Um, So going back to Ogilvy, et cetera. um, So when Ogilvy provides a solution for clients, they can only ever be communication solutions. So let's just say Osher wants to have his business, launch his company in America, then I'd I, as Ogilvy, would say, hey, this is your print commercial mm. or your TV ad or mm-hmm. website, et cetera. But then I realized uh, down the track is that that's not what you, that that's not the 360-degree uh, level that you need to grow your business. So there's a lot of things. You might need connections. You might need uh, distribution, sales. You might need a lot of other things to grow your your, your business interaction. So I fill all those gaps in. So that's what, essentially what I do for a lot of the companies. I found a quote from
2: you. Which I love. It was about working with a games a gaming company in Indonesia called Tinker. Okay. And the quote is written by this. It made, It's there's a few uh, ellipses in there, but it says, "I. This is you. I studied their talents and assessed their global opportunities. I placed the Tinker team on a prospective program. Now I love this part because you're very. You've only ever come across to me as a gentle, kind, uh, man, and then you say." I told them that they must follow 100% of my instructions if they're to turn the company around. They were not allowed to question or challenge my requests. They were only allowed to execute what I say they must do. One year later, <laughs> they've got $800,000 in their bank account and they're one of Asia's <laughs> premier gaming companies. That is remarkable that you, that, that, that you operate like that. I had no idea that you operated like that.
1: Well, you know, Tinker Games is one of one of my companies. So, um... And um, and so, yeah, look, unfortunately, sometimes you have to take draconian steps. Mm-hmm. Either a company is going to go bankrupt or it's going to turn around. Um, and, you know, I copped a lot of flack for that. Trust me, I, I copped a lot of flack for in that. In the company? Well, no, not in the company because I'm great friends with the CEO and all of the team members. We're like family. We're, we love each other. But um, externally, I copped a lot of flack for that because, you know, people felt that I was being a draconian, being, you know, doctor control, et cetera, but actually they needed my help yeah and I have to be prescriptive at some some stages like there are companies that i um there are companies that I own that the CEOs kind of run and do their own thing with me just sort of micromanaging and sort of adding little you know little doses of advice and then, you know uh, but then there are companies that are struggling that I must literally stranglehold and sort of take hold of and and they must do 100 percent of what I tell them to do. Um, because ultimately, I don't want these companies to fail, and what I have really is just years of experience versus them. Some of them may only be about twenty-four or twenty-eight years old, right? And I think my age of about you know thirty-eight, also just it's it's just experience. Mm. And sometimes they just have to. Uh, we all have to surrender our egos at some sort of stage, right? And allow somebody else's ego. To, well, anyone to that success,
2: right? anyone that gave you a grief for that statement has
1: clearly
2: never worked in broadcasting because. I, speaking of ego, I have been, since starting in radio, the, the whole idea of radio is like, okay, Ginsberg, this is exactly what you have to say. Exactly when you say it, stop saying those words. Start saying these words. If you ever want a career in this business, you've got to do it exactly this way. And you have to just go, like I was saying before we roll tape, so you have to go, well, maybe my ideas not the best idea. Maybe this person's got a point. And what do you know? I have had a career in broadcasting for 21 years now because of these people who basically beat me bloody once a week uh, when I was resisting their advice so much. But their advice got me got me where I am.
1: And we need those. We need those people to yeah. be draconian. We need those yep. mentors. We never. Uh, we, you'll never understand or value the the importance of mentorship until mm. you're on the other side of the success. Yeah. Uh, frame. So yes, absolutely. There are times that I have to be draconian, and there are times that I can't be. But Generally, I try and be a nice guy. Of
2: course, <laughs> and I'm sure. Look, I'm that quite. I'm, I understand now that quite's been taken, and they've cut it up and they've <laughs> made it yes. make you sound like you're Mr. Wolf in Pulp Fiction. Do what I do when I when I say it, <laughs> and we're going to get out of this, okay? Um, which you know, that's not a bad reputation to have. You look great in a tuxedo, just like he was. Uh, but. <laughs> How are you able to assess and create such a successful plan for a business?
1: Well, it, it really uh, comes down to the talent. And I have to sit down and analyze everybody's talent. What are you good at? What are you bad at? What are, we as a, what are we as a company? What is our ultimate single proposition? How are we going to be different to every other games company in the world? What do we have that they don't have? What does the market need commercially? How can we make this happen? So there's a lot of questions that I ask myself. And a lot of the times it's, not, it's nothing quantitative. There's nothing, A plus B does not necessarily equal C. Years have given me intuition.
2: Right. So what's what's the first thing that you look at when a client comes to you?
1: Their objectives. I spend a lot of time listening, actually. I'm I'm a big listener. So I spend a lot of time just listening to people and just wanting to gauge them and understand what they're all about and what they're you know, ultimately, we all share the same aspirations, don't we? We all share the absolute same aspirations. But some people see um, there are different paths to those aspirations. So I kind of want to understand the path that they were heading towards and then maybe engineer it uh-huh. to another path or, or, or to what I may have, what I may feel is a slightly better path.
2: Right. So for people who are listening, they may not be running their own business. They may be running a household. They may be just running their life. What... What are some like simple fixes some, that people can look at if they wanted to perhaps level up what they're doing?
1: I think you level up by um, being conscious of the mindset firstly is that, um, uh, you know, I, I think you've really got to be brave and as I was saying, search for opportunity, not security. The next thing also is just be mindful of the environment and the people that you are uh, engaging with on a daily basis. Who they are, the, their qualities, Um, and, uh, and, and if they, you know, if they fit into your aspirations, if, if, um, if they reflect a lot of your aspirations, for example, if you wanted to become, you know, a very fit and healthy person, but everybody else that you're hanging out with is just like at McDonald's every other day, well, they're not going to support you on that path. They're probably going to distract you from that path, right? So you just got to be conscious of those sorts of people. Um, and then after that, I have a very, um, uh, I, th- I think gratitude plays a very important part in my life also. I'm very grateful for everything. I'm, you know, I, I try to be as honest as possible about my life, about my experiences. And part of that is is where gratitude sort of fits, fits in, where you accept mm. um, all the little, you know, the little streams and the, all, all the little, uh, you know, the, the currents that push you and pull you and take you to different places. You ex- accept that as part of the, the story of your life and be grateful for that and i've always been grateful of all the hard times that my family's gone through or the or the great times that my family's gone through and they just amplify the great times so i think i, th- I think gratitude plays an important part and the next part also is that uh, we never really have learned a lesson or we've never really moved on from something if you don't accept 100% responsibility for where you're at today is that a lot of the a lot of times that we you know some people hold grudges and some people that hold resentments for other people and they they blame others for, you know, like 98% themselves, 2% or whatever sort of equation or even if there's no equation to that. But um, I feel that uh, we only really move on and become better people is that when we accept 100% responsibility for everything that we've achieved, not achieved, succeeded, failed at, etc. So anything that I've accomplished is, um, you know, I attribute 100% to the others. Right, it's a product of my mother, product of my father, product of my friends, product of people like yourself that I learned from, product of everybody else around me. But 100% of everything that I've ever failed at, everything that I've, you know, I have, you know, that 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 uh, you know, I've my mistakes are are, are me, completely me. And so, um, you know that, but that comes with a, you know, that comes with time, age, and some sort of level of maturity.
2: There's uh, there's such great freedom though in that. There's such great freedom in accepting not just not only just acceptance there's such great freedom in, in the taking on of failures not in a i'm beating myself over the back with mm. a stick kind of way but um i like to say you know of course of course i got a divorce totally understand it i get it because this is what was my contribution to the situation of course my marriage failed totally understand it. rather than you know or of, of course my business failed or of course my band broke up rather than screw you, you know, it's them, it's that, I can't believe that they did this to me. Because then you're in a victim mentality and then you're powerless. Yep. But if you take responsibility for it, it's yours, you own it, and you can do something about
1: it. Yeah, right. absolutely. It's great and, freedom in it. Yeah, and absolutely. And we can all live as victors or victims and I yeah. choose never. I, 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 You know, like when I look at my life, I have nothing I have nothing to be a victim about i've never been a victim of anything we've always had food on the table we've always had education offered to us in some sort of in fact that was like a priority of our family we've always had love in the house we've always had we've goodness my family is like the ultimate um when i when i think of the word love my family completely reflects that you know like when one person's got a medical appointment Everybody goes to that. <laughs> like, like I decided to get a health check today. Uh, well, I, I decided to get a health check, right? So my mother comes, my brother comes. My they all. I mean, like, come on, this is just getting ridiculous, right? But hey, so there's nice. there's love behind that, That's isn't so there? Nice. There's love and concern, and there's there's you know. Um, but uh, you know, I, I I have complete complete um, gratitude for everything mm. that I've, I've been given, and it's it's an amazing life, isn't it? It's 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 it really it's, is. it's, it's, it's a miracle of our country it's a miracle of the opportunities it really is
2: it it really is and after living away for so long and having seen other societies and other cultures seeing what we have in australia it's just we really are uh, i don't know if the rest of the world would let us get away with what we did if they knew what we're up to here if they knew you know um you've lived all over the world you've lived you have the opportunity to live in sydney you've lived in singapore you've you know you can live in london why why did you return to indonesia
1: Indonesia has never been a country that I've ever contributed to. (coughs) And um, being of brown skin, looking like an Indonesian and uh, et cetera, that I needed and I I wanted that for myself too. It was a very much, it was a selfish pursuit as much as it was in an an altruistic pursuit also. So I needed to get back to my basics too um, because all I knew about Indonesia was all those, you know, like just the family trips that we would go to like once a year or twice a year too. Um, and Indonesia has been a wondrous experience for me um, because I feel like I'm, I'm connected when, you know, when you feel that you're connected mm-hmm. to some sort of land or where you feel that, yeah. Um, not that I've never been connected, I felt connected to Australia or whatever, but like I just have that extra connection with Indonesia. Um, but yes, uh, it was something that I had to do and it had to happen at this sort of age and stage of my life. So I moved to Indonesia in July 2012, in the summer of 2012. During the London Olympics, I decided to move there, and I got a one-way ticket, and um, it was possibly one of the best one-way tickets anybody could have gotten. In the same way that uh, one of the best one-way tickets that I got ever was the one-way ticket from Sydney to Singapore in on September nine, uh, two sorry, two days before nine one one in two thousand and one, I moved over to Singapore, yeah. and and July twenty twelve was when I had got a one-way ticket uh, to to Indonesia, and. Um, it's been a great experience, you know Indonesia, where it's at right now is um and and this is how I feel about it. also is that I cannot contribute to the world if I cannot contribute to my community and uh, and Indonesia just happens to be my community right now and where I choose to contribute. What's the biggest misconception people have about Indonesia? Well, there's a lot of misconceptions. I mean I think you know uh all right, fine, uh you know corruption, uh all these all these horrible things, right? Um, and, um, but not a Indonesia only been a country for about 70 years. Yeah. So we've only just gained independence from, from the Dutch. So the Dutch have ruled us for like 300 years or so. So what we, what we learned, we learned from the Dutch naturally. And so, um, you know, before then we were just villagers. we were just like getting fish down there. We were like rice paddies and all that sort of stuff. So that's pretty then... nice. <laughs> <It> sounds pretty nice. <laughs> I'd love to go back to there, right? But, um, but you know, I mean, um, you know, the Dutch and Indonesia, we have a strong history together. We have a strong and loving history now together. Um, you know, the Dutch are regarded as royalty when they come over to Indonesia and stuff. Wow. But, um, you know, I mean, like, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's a, there's, there's a, it, it's, it's a country with the growing pains. And even now when we talk about, you know, sensitive issues such as, like, the hanging and deaths and, you know, drugs and all that sort of stuff, um, you know, Indonesia is a country that hasn't come into the light, if you know what I mean, in that, um, in that, you know, everybody knows, you know, the world's biggest country, which is like China and India and, and, and the US. But nobody knows that Indonesia is like the world's fourth biggest country with 250 million people. Indonesia is never really at the center of global politics and never at the center of foreign, because we don't really, we've got so much stuff that we need to take care of internally that we never really get involved in. In foreign policy but you know like one thing that's recently come to light obviously is the you know the bali the bali nine and 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 the death sentence and all that sort of stuff and you know i myself being um you know having grown up in australia and in and me my, myself being in indonesia right now is that um you know i'm completely against the death sentence completely and I believe that it is barbaric. I believe that a human has no right to take. Uh, and I believe it's just too fraught with many errors, like the judicial system, whether it's in Indonesia or Singapore or Thailand, wherever it is, I don't think it has that, um, you know, I don't think it has that level of, um, the level of purity and cleanliness and all these things that would make a justice, uh, the right justification to kill somebody. And, you know, how many grams is worth, death and how much is worth only 99 years or so right so it's something that i'm completely against but um something that i can understand also from the indonesian perspective in that i can understand that um australia for example is lobbying indonesia to uh, to ensure that the death penalty doesn't happen but i can understand indonesia as being a country of um uh you know it needs to protect its citizens too um and uh, it doesn't have the affluence of australia to do a lot of pre-drug education like you know at, at the age of like 13 14 we're having a lot of drug education in australia right mm-hmm. that drugs are bad for you and the government invests a lot of money to try and you know educate that indonesia just doesn't have that money so indonesia is more of a ha, has has more of a preventive and defensive strategy against drugs rather than australia can be quite proactive mm-hmm. right we just don't have the funds yeah. in indonesia to have that and so that's a, that's the way that indonesia sort of safeguards itself but um you know, it's, it's a very sensitive issue, but one that I hope that doesn't, you know, that, that I hope in time, you know, there, there, there are no, no deaths, that, mm. you know, that rests on Indonesian hands. Because I... I it's particularly
2: painful for you considering your relationship with both countries.
1: I, I have a great relationship with both countries and I have an affinity. I have my hearts in both countries and I feel that my one leg is in one and mm. the other one is in the other. Um, and so, but I think, I, you know, Ind- Indonesians are generally very warm people, very loving, very caring. And, you know, I'm sure that when you go to Bali or wherever you go in Indonesia, but, like people are calling you sir, mister, and everybody want, wants to talk to you and harass you and sell you, you know, bintang shirts and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, you know, I, I guess Indonesia itself really um, needs to come of age also.
2: Yeah. Many Australians have an opinion, I'm sure, about absolutely Indonesia. But what's life actually like there?
1: Life's pretty amazing, actually, in Indonesia. I mean, like when I when I look at and I reflect on my life in Indonesia, it's pretty awesome. Um, but I, you know, I admit, I, you know, I admit, I am part of the one percent of Indonesia, um, and I say that humbly, not to, you know, mm-hmm. not not boastfully, um, but, you know. Indonesia, one great thing about us is that we have a strong sense of community. That's what I love. That's what I love about India. We have a very strong sense of community. Now here's, just to give you an example, it would be considered like no-go zone to put your parents into a retirement home. Absolutely no-go zone. We do not put our parents in retirement homes. If a parent gets ill or one dies or whatever, the parent lives with, with, with the children sort of stuff um and communities like they they become like strong backbones of a support um and that's very different like i myself my neighbors etc in, in jakarta we all know each other we all know each other's names know each other's business <laughs> all that sort of stuff right which is good and bad but then after that in australia like many times you don't even know your neighbor's name neighbor. yeah. and there's something to do with that that is kind of good because it kind of like you have your privacy, you can do what you want, nobody comments on your life. But then actually there's something very beautiful about that Indonesian, that that feudal sort of um life where you know each other, you care about each other, and if something happens to you and if and if you've not seen somebody come out of their home for the past three days, well what's going on? And you'd knock on the door and etc. Because sometimes in Australia I hear cases of like people like dead for like
0: yeah weeks or oh, days or so in, though,
1: it? and 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 that's that happens weird. in the States too. Yeah. Yeah. In the States too. And I think that I think that is a saving grace for Indonesia. Yeah. And that's why I think I love an aspect of why I love Indonesia. What are the
2: uh what are the challenges slash opportunities that Indonesia faces, which I'm sure you're not there unless you're like, Oh, this is an exciting place. There's lots going on. You you wouldn't be there any other way. I don't know that about you. Yeah. What are the what are the opportunities, what are the challenges that Indonesia faces in the next ten, twenty years?
1: Right. Okay. So I've, I've, um, I've become a bit of an investment hub for Indonesia. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the Americans and the Japanese and the Koreans and Chinese, whenever they want to come and invest in Indonesia, a lot of them go through myself and they'll ask me, okay, Wempi, what should we invest in? What should we not? And all that stuff. And there's millions of dollars being pumped into the economy Great. every day. Right. Every day, like it's millions of dollars. Um, and so the opportunities are huge because, you know, the domestic economy is so strong. Remember for the global economic crisis, the global financial crisis that happened in the states and UK, et etc., in two thousand eight or so, Indonesia didn't feel that. Wow, they were like thriving. It's, it's, it's you know it's it's a hot, really hot domestic economy. So the opportunities are huge, for from a technology standpoint, from an infrastructure standpoint, from natural resources. Indonesia is part of the G twenty, right? And by um by um. By uh, year 2030, according to McKinsey, Indonesia will be the world's eighth most powerful economy. Wow. It's already the number 17th or so, right? But, uh, you know, it'll be the eighth most powerful economy. It'll it'll exceed the UK. It'll exceed a lot of other sort of economies. So, yes, the economy is hot right now. And actually, this is the golden era of yeah, Indonesia. Right. In terms of um, we have a very different population pyramid, whereas uh, the UK and Australia, etc. there's a lot of people that are aging with a very small minority of people work, of working age that are supporting the aging. Hence, you have higher taxes, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas we have a completely opposite population pyramid where we have a huge number of young people. Over half of the population is under the age of like 25, more than half. That's right? incredible. Incredible. To only support a very small minority who are of, of, uh, of pension and of, yeah. of, of old age. So we have a very strong working population that needs to be educated, right? And they want to be educated to the highest degrees. They want foreign education. They want now consumer goods. They want their middle class. They've got a lot of money. They've got money now to spend. They're above the $1.25 international poverty line. They're part of the middle class. They're part of the working class. They have dreams now. So when people have passed the mark of survival, they're now moving into aspiration and dream mode, right? Where they can dream a little because they're not as concerned about their stomachs. And so that's where Indonesians are right now. And that's where the opportunities are. So a lot of my investments, so um, the, the the companies that I've invested, you know, poured, you know, a few millions, et cetera, but uh, a lot of them have to do with supporting that middle class, whether it's like, you know, internet service providers, whether it is, um, you know, apps and digital and fashion and different things. and But uh, it's, it's it's you know, a lot of people don't know. A lot of people think that, you know, our, our friend Princess Rima, right? Mm. We think that Saudi Arabia is at the center of Islam in the world, right? It's completely wrong. Sure, Mecca is there, but actually Indonesia is the country that holds the world's high, highest population of Muslims, right? So we've got like 90% of like 250 million people who are Muslims, in our country, right, and so there comes that particular need of there's a huge Muslim market, there's a huge middle market, and you know uh, obviously you know there's a huge affluent market. Yeah. So so when we talk about affluence in Australia, it's when I look at for example who are the billionaires in Australia, like the Reinhardt family, the Fairfax family, the Packers, etc. They don't compare to the Indonesian billionaires and millionaires. Yeah. Absolutely not. It's on a completely different level. The Indonesian billionaires and millionaires and the Asian ones are on a completely different level. They're like, um, you can't even compare their wealth to like Australian wealth. Mm-hmm. And it's not it there's it's 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 because Indonesia is so rich in natural resources, mm-hmm. and therein in lies a lot of problems. Is that we're feeding a lot of people, but there's a lot of exploitation issues happening too, right? We're raping our rainforests, uh, you know, Sumatran tigers are like extinct basically, right? Um, populations of animals, of fisheries, all these different things are being exploited. So are exploiting and are being exploited. So we have a lot of issues to deal with as a nation. And so my hope is that, um, and I've been very explicit about this when I'm on stage in Indonesia, is that we need to really take back control of our destiny. Because if not, we're going to create this wasteland for future generations, simply to satisfy our wants now above our needs. So Indonesia is now—it's—it's—I um, uh, it, can't say that we're a first world because we're not, but there are pockets of that in Jakarta, in you know different circles, etc. There's wealth beyond imagination, but there's also poverty mm. beyond imagination. Also,
2: and is this taking back? Is this where the Wempy Wempy Dr Koto Award comes in? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I, okay. So the award, and and I will uh, state this again: is that um, I will state this: is that I've never put my name onto anything. You haven't. I've never.
2: Plenty of opportunity, I'm sure.
1: Plenty of opportunity, (laughs) right? For example, I could have opened up my consultancy and called it, you know, Koto & Partners or my venture capital firm and called it whatever. But, uh, you know, the Wempy Dr. Koto Award that um, I've just recently created um, was born from the fact that uh, I travel around the islands of Indonesia a lot and I speak at a lot of different events and I'm on TV quite a bit also. And so with that comes a lot of people wanting to learn from me so um so you know there are stories about um uh you know kids that have uh you know because they can't afford to get on planes right that they would uh, catch trains for like you know thirty six hours and then sleep at train stations right because they can't afford a hotel to come and watch me speak for one hour right there are people that have flown a couple of islands crossed ferries dangerous fer- ferries all that sort of stuff and driven through like. I, I even have stories where there was like a um, there was a fire that was happening over at uh, Borneo in on the island of Kalimantan, and people drove from the city of uh, Banjarmasin to Samarinda at night during the fire, just not too far away, just to come and watch me speak for about an hour. But that to me proved the thirst for knowledge in Indonesia, which led me to create this award. And essentially, the award is um, uh, it, it, so it, to me it was everything that that I learned in my life. So it, was, it wasn't about your postcode. So it has nothing to do with that where you live or who your parents are or what your income is and what you had achieved in the past. If you were cum laude, if you were like, you know, at straight, it had nothing to do with that. It's about who are you today and what are your dreams for tomorrow? And that's simply what it's all about. And so um, and so the the 12 winners, the 12 outstanding Indonesian winners, which will be announced on Indonesian, Ind- Indonesia's Independence Day on August seventeenth. Will win mentorship with 12 uh, famous Indonesian mentors as well as 12 uh, in uh, well, 12 great uh, awesome uh, international mentors for 12 inspiring months including yourself
2: I couldn't be more proud to be a part of it Wempy. it's a it's a really really exciting initiative and um, I'm really looking forward to getting up to to Jakarta and coming to see uh, see your world up there because growing up in Australia much you know like anything you if you don't know enough about something, generally, you're afraid of it, all right? I think that's basically what people do. If I don't know enough about homosexuals, therefore, I'm terrified of them, not having any clue that there's probably two or three in their life they just don't know their name. <laughs> They just don't, you know, that don't advertise. And the same with people I think very much with uh, certainly at the moment in Australia, which boggles my mind to come back to seeing all these people on the streets with this islamophobia bullshit and i, I think I, the only thing there is education man. the only thing there is education and i'm a big fan of going and seeing something with your own eyes so i'm very very excited about coming up to jakarta and coming to I uh, do you want to come to some of these islands you talk about though i'd love to go and go and check that out that sounds like a
1: wild wild time up there yeah it's it, it's fantastic and you never know something until you experience it right? yeah because truly. antarctica will always be something like wow what what's going on there or or Africa will always be something like, or South, but like you never know till you go. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think the, I, yeah, Jakarta is an amazing frontier. Yeah. It, it, it really do is. Do you
2: see, uh, how do you see Australian-Indonesian relations? If the economy is growing as much as it is, surely people will get over whatever they have, they, they have here about whatever they think of Indonesia and just go, oh, there's money to be made. Do you think that'll help bridge the gap between those two countries?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I hope that uh, everything is just is is more than economics. You know, ultimately, economics will drive this, but I hope everything will be more than economics because we have a lot more to offer than just yeah. economics. We have, you, it it'd be ama- amazing to kind of like listen to the history of the world through Indonesian eyes.
0: Yeah,
1: right. That would be amazing, right? To see to see how Indonesians view the world, to see how Indonesians view the future. But like I, I feel that why aren't we better friends? Why, why are Australians such good friends with New Zealanders and such good friends with Singaporeans and Thais? But like we're we're your own neighbor, we're on your doorstep, right? We have no intention of like sending our army here to tell. I mean, like there's none of that. We're too busy trying to manage our own internal economy. Do you know (laughs) what I mean? So Australians and Indonesians, we should be a lot closer. We should be a lot closer. And I'm just like, sometimes I get a bit fed up also is that I watch, um, you know, there's some sort of scare thing happening at Bali that's on that's Aussie TV and all these different things when, you know, I mean, like it could happen anywhere in the world, kind True. of. it? And um, Indonesians, I, I, ju- I just find that Indonesians are so welcoming towards foreigners, like we really are. And, um, and so, you know, I, you know I, I, I look forward to extending that to you
2: well i would very much like to think of finding some sort of way that we could maybe in the next year of the award maybe do a bit of cross cultural thing between australian startups because i know there's a fine firing startup scene happening in uh, in jakarta at the moment it's a lot closer than silicon valley and there seems to be a lot of capital going on so and and it's got access to the biggest market in the world china and asia's right there it's far bigger than north america so I'd like to. I'd like to think that you know, whatever those policies were, may belong to the generation yeah. above us, yeah. and that the generation below us might see beyond all that and and purely see the the cultural benefits of being closer friends.
1: Yeah, and I think I think Australia needs to step out of its bubble. Also, is that Australia has um, long had such strong ties with the UK and Europe, etc. When really, Asia is just really outside the doorstep. Yeah, we and pretend I,
2: not to be part of Asia, but we yeah. are.
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit sad, but um, the thing is that, like, with with myself in Jakarta, I mean, I'm I'm there for X amount of time, but like, I spend a lot of time elsewhere also. So I, you know, I serve as a mentor in China, in 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 China Accelerate at Shanghai, I, you know, Kuala Lumpur, uh, Singapore, all these different places all around Asia that I, you know, hop over to to teach, to mentor, to advise all these different things. And Australia should be part of that. Yeah, and you know, it, it's 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 a uh, yeah I, I think but it's got to be a conscious decision and that conscious decision has to be born out of opportunity not out of security and fear
2: I couldn't agree with you more Wempy I you're the busiest man I've ever met and I've met some busy people so thank you for taking like an hour and a half out of your time to come and do this thank you you're the best should we go eat some lunch
1: yeah we shall but right. thank you so much <laughs> awesome thank you
2: so that was Wempy Deocta Cotto. Find him on Twitter. Let him know you heard him here. He's at Wempy, W-E-M-P-Y, Deocta, D-Y-O-C-T-A, Cotto, K-O-T-O. Wempy Dioctacodo. Koto. Say hello to him on Twitter. Follow what he's up to. He's doing some really exciting things. So wise, such a wise man. He's a brilliant young man, handsome young man, just driving force to bring great change to his enormous country fourth largest country in the world I'm honored to know him and I'm honored that you took the time to listen to this show so thank you so much for listening have a peaceful week try to show those around you who fear try and show them nothing but love this week be kind sleep well dream of beautiful things and I'll talk to you next week